This Day in Crime is released every day, Monday through Saturday. For ad-free listening and exclusive bonus content, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus at tenderfootplus.com or on Apple Podcasts. Let's start the show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Todd McComas, and today is Super Sick Monday, which, in case you weren't aware, is the new name for the Monday following the Super Bowl, a name derived from the fact that an estimated 16.1 million U.S. workers call off sick today. So if you're one of those people, good for you. One day your dedication to staying home the day after the Super Bowl every year is going to pay off, and our government will be forced to make today a national holiday. Until then, stay the course. I'm proud of you. Now let's dive into some crime news. Here's my lead-in. An update on the high-flying judge beater? A different mile-high club? A mafia-related basketball brawl? Boys just want to have guns, walking tall, an expensive night out, and cartel meth floods Montana. All coming up on this Day in Crime. Let's start off with an update on the Deobra Redden legal saga. Redden is the Las Vegas dude who became internet famous after a court video of him leaping over Judge Mary Kay Holtis's bench and assaulting her went viral. One week later, Judge Holtis sentenced Redden to four years for the battery conviction that had him in her court to begin with. Now for his actual assault on Judge Holtis, a grand jury has indicted him for nine new counts, including attempted murder. Whoa, I gotta be honest with you, I didn't see that one coming. But according to the indictment, what we couldn't see in the video because our view was obstructed was Redden placing his hands around the judge's throat in an attempt to strangle her. This attempted murder charge obviously sends a message to Redden that the Clark County Prosecutor's Office isn't gonna pull any punches either. His arraignment is set for February 29th, so we'll keep you updated. There might be a different Mile High Club in the works, and this one has nothing to do with screwing someone in a plane and everything to do with screwing someone out of a plane. Last month, a man was arrested for stealing a small private airplane from the North Las Vegas airport and flying it to the Barstow, California area. Now the San Mateo County Sheriff's Office has arrested a Miami man for virtually the same thing. The man allegedly stole this single-engine aircraft from an airport in Palo Alto, California, and then crash-landed it about 30 miles away on a beach south of San Francisco. The man was able to walk away from the crash, but was apprehended shortly thereafter. The San Mateo County Sheriff's Office is investigating the theft in tandem with the Palo Alto Police Department. You know what would be awesome is if they find out there's like a Fast and Furious crew out there stealing airplanes instead of cars. Either way, this needs to be the premise of Fast and Furious 11. I mean, for cripe's sake, it's the 10th sequel. How about we mix it up? Let's move things over to the East Coast, Lettingtown, New York, where the wife and daughter of John Gotti Jr. are facing criminal charges. John Gotti Jr. is obviously the son and namesake of notorious New York mob boss, John Gotti Sr. John Jr. served six years for his role in helping to run the Gambino crime family while his dad was locked up, 
and now his wife Kimberly and daughter Gianna find themselves at odds with the law. Not for racketeering or any other kind of organized crime activity, but for a fist fight with a woman at a high school basketball game. They're accused of assaulting the woman after she asked them to stop cursing at players from the bleachers. I guess you can take the gangsters out of the mob, but you can't take the mob out of the gangsters. Evidently, John and Kimberly Gotti's son, Joseph, was on the court playing against his school rivals. And when this woman asked Kimberly to stop screaming profanity at the other players, she said Kimberly and Gianni tag-teamed her like a scene out of Goodfellas. She said the two punched her and pulled off her wig, which was held on by three clips and Velcro. Sounds pretty painful. The Gottis, who were each charged with third-degree assault, disputed the woman's account. In fact, John Gotti Jr. told reporters the woman assaulted his wife first. So they have some stories to sort out, and Kimberly and Gianni are both scheduled to appear in court on March 6th. Until then, let's just hope this other woman doesn't magically disappear. According to pop legend Cindy Lauper, girls just want to have fun. And based on her son Declan's latest arrest, boys just want to have guns. Rapper Declan Lopper has been released from custody after his father, actor David Thornton, posted a cash bond. Declan was arrested for illegally carrying a loaded firearm in New York City, which is a big no-no, but this incident might run a little deeper than that. Declan was taken into police custody moments after a 24-year-old male was shot Wednesday night in Harlem on West 112th Street near Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Boulevard. According to court records, Declan was apprehended nearby after the shooting. He allegedly possessed a fanny pack that contained a loaded Glock with seven bullets in its magazine. And the complaint went on to say that Lopper possessed this weapon with intent to use it unlawfully against another. And he was charged with two counts of criminal possession of a firearm. So prosecutors allege that Declan and another man took an Uber from Queens to 135th West and 112th Street just before that shooting occurred. The victim, Omar Lewin, was taken to the hospital and was said to be in stable condition. Lewin was also charged with criminal possession of a weapon, which makes things a little more interesting. This certainly isn't Declan Lopper's first run-in with the law, and it sounds like this investigation could lead to additional charges. And as a father, I feel bad for his parents, especially Cindy, but fortunately for Declan, it sounds like if he falls, she will catch him because she will be waiting time after time. That's a big song of hers. You can Google it. If you're a Tenderfoot Plus subscriber, keep enjoying your ad-free experience. For everyone else, we'll be right back after this break. Here's an interesting story for the older folks. The Tennessee Bureau of Investigation has exhumed the body of the wife of famed sheriff Buford Pusser. Buford Pusser became regionally famous in the late 1960s after he waged his own private war on members of organized crime in McNary County. During that war, he was allegedly shot eight times, stabbed seven times, and killed two people in self-defense. He became nationally famous after his story was made legendary in the 1973 movie Walking Tall. Sheriff Pusser was played by Joe Don Baker in that film, and then his story was retold in the 2004 remake starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson, who, by the way, looks nothing like Pusser. 
His wife, Pauline Pusser, was killed in McNary County on August 12, 1967, in an alleged ambush. She was riding in the front passenger seat next to her husband when unknown persons showered his patrol car with bullets. Sheriff Pusser was shot in the jaw, but survived his injury. Pusser's patrol car was hit 11 times, and investigators found 14 spent 30 caliber cartridges on the road where Pusser said the shooting occurred. The investigation into his wife's murder has remained active all these years, but investigators have just recently learned there was never an autopsy conducted on her body. And now, 56 years later, she'll get one. Authorities are hoping her autopsy will help them discover who was responsible for her murder. On a side note, Buford Pusser died in a car wreck in August 1974 on the very day he agreed to betray himself in the Walking Tall sequel. Maybe they'll be able to dig into that a little more as well. Those Dixie Mafia secrets aren't quite as sacred as they used to be. And all I ask is, if they do solve it and that bursts another Walking Tall sequel, please let Timothy Oliphant play Buford Pusser. Waking up from a blackout drunk is never fun because from the moment you wake up, you have to become your own detective. You have to solve the mystery of what happened that night before by finding clues and interviewing witnesses. But what if during your post-blackout investigation, you discovered you were robbed of more than 30 grand? Well, two different men say they were each robbed of tens of thousands of dollars after they went to the same Atlanta sports bar on different nights by criminals who gained access to their iPhones. Charlie Zena, 27, and Micah Brown, 34, said they were robbed after they visited Five Paces Inn in Atlanta's Buckhead neighborhood. Zena reported that he was robbed last week and Brown last year. The men said they believed the thieves either used their unconscious faces to unlock their iPhones or acquired their passcodes without their permission. Zena said he was at the bar by himself after he was separated from his friends. He said the last thing he remembers is talking to an unknown woman at the bar. Then he woke up in the back seat of an unknown car, unable to move and unable to speak. That's not good. He said there was two men and a woman in the car. He said at some point the car stopped in a parking lot of an apartment complex and one of the men pinned him down in the parking lot and began taking his belongings, his wallet, jewelry, and cell phone. Then once he managed to make his way home, he learned that roughly $25,000 had been transferred out of his checking accounts. Cena also said the thieves changed the password on his iCloud account. Can you imagine? Your entire life is controlled by that password. That's like a nightmare on top of a nightmare. No arrests have been made in his case, nor in Brown's case, where he lost more than $34,000. And let these cases be a warning to everyone, no matter where you live because this has happened in Austin, Texas and New York City as well. And in the New York City cases, at least seven people were killed. So if you're going to the bar, make sure you use the buddy system and keep your eye on your drinks. If you weren't convinced before that no place is safe from Mexican drug cartels, then wait until you hear this story. Mexican cartels have taken advantage of the scarce law enforcement presence on Indian reservations to flood Montana with fentanyl and meth. Because the population of 1.2 million is spread out across 150,000 miles of rugged terrain, fentanyl goes for nearly 20 times the price in Big Sky Country. And of course, it didn't take long for cartels to figure this out and move in to dominate the market. According to representatives with the DEA, 
the cartels initially targeted Native Americans by giving away an initial supply for free. This increased addiction numbers among members of the reservation, and then the cartel sank its claws into small distribution networks inside the reservation. Obviously, the vast remoteness of Montana works in their favor because law enforcement already struggled to cover their wide-reaching territories, but setting up operations directly on Native American land has added incentive. Local and state officials aren't allowed to enforce the law there. It's a giant loophole that now benefits cartels operating in Montana and leaves its Native American population at greater risk. The Northern Cheyenne tribe filed a lawsuit against the Interior Department and its Bureau of Indian Affairs, alleging that the federal government had breached its obligation to keep residents on the reservation safe by failing to provide an adequate number of trained law enforcement officers. So despite their limited resources, some desperate tribes have tried to fight back. The Northern Cheyenne tribe, for example, has formed its own vigilante group called the People's Camp to fight back against the surge in violent crime and drug trafficking plaguing its community. So let's hope a couple things happen soon. First, let's hope these tribes get some much needed help from our government. And secondly, let's hope writer director Taylor Sheridan gets wind of these vigilante groups because the People's Camp needs to be his next series on Paramount+. And if you don't know who Taylor Sheridan is, then go to the Paramount Plus app and scroll through their original content because he made all of it. That's all I got for today. So make sure you tune in tomorrow for more top stories with Laura Benson. I'll see you on Friday. This Day in Crime is a production of Tenderfoot TV in partnership with Odyssey. Produced in association with Burning Mountain Productions. Sources for today's episode and full credits can be found in the show notes, and you can follow us on social media at This Day in Crime. We're back at it tomorrow. Thanks for listening.